I remember as a young man, I was actually a youth back in the day when I first learned about this genie in a bottle who could grant your every wish. You simply had to rub the bottle and out would come the seemingly all-powerful genie who would say to you, your, my wish is your command. Let's see. Did I get that right? Your wish is my command, is what he would say. And I remember when my mom, who was watching with us, uh, explained this to me. And then she told me you could, you could get your three wishes, but on the third wish, always wish for three more wishes. And then I found out, wow, in doing that, I could literally get everything I wanted. I didn't have to, to choose between this and that. I could literally get everything as long as I kept wishing for three more wishes. And so as, as we get older, we cease to believe in genies and bottles, but we sometimes wish that we could win the lottery, right? Or maybe that there might be some wealthy relative that we didn't know very much about who left us an entire inheritance simply because they wanted to give it to us. And, and we find ourselves daydreaming. What if I could really have it all? Well, we're going to look at a passage today about a wise sage in the ancient world who, who really did have it all. And then some. He had all the power and the wealth to create the kind of life that he always wanted. And we're going to hear him tell us that it still left him longing, searching for more. In fact, some of you may remember that song by the rock group U2. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. If you know that song, uh, pretend like you have that playing as the soundtrack for our study today, because the ancient sage is essentially going to tell us what this anthem says over and over again. It doesn't matter what accomplishments you have. It doesn't matter uh, what experiences you accumulate. It will still leave you longing for more. It will still leave you saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And so we're going to call our study today this, when all you've ever wanted isn't enough. And so we're going to look at these words from this ancient sage that Jesus himself read and meditated upon and saw himself as the fulfillment of. And so as we get ready to do that, I wonder if you would join me in just a moment of prayer, asking the Lord to, to push back all the distractions and everything that weighs us down and enable us to give attention to the study of this ancient text. Let's pray together. Lord, there is so much that calls for our attention, and we find it sometimes hard to focus our attention in these days. We've got so many items of news coming at us and so many demands of work and so much confusion and frustration with having our lives rearranged by this pandemic. And we just ask that you would meet us in this moment, that as we assemble to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we assemble to discover more of our place in your story, as we assemble through this medium of the internet and this application called Zoom, that you would nevertheless send forth your spirit and pour it upon us in each of our locations. Give us the attention we need, the focus that we, we need in order to be able to understand your words of wisdom and how you would desire for us to think about life and how you desire us to live, and how really the answer that you have for this world is Jesus and Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we get ready to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, don't forget that the, the theme question that this ancient sage is asking is, what does a person gain by all his efforts at which he labors under the sun? In other words, 
for all the scurrying around we do and our to-do list that seem to never be done, what is it that we ultimately gain? And that is what he has been asking. And that's really what he's going to be asking throughout our entire study of this amazing book of Ecclesiastes. And where we left off last time with him was he was left in this, this state of perplexity. Uh, he, he said, with much wisdom comes much vexation. And the more he gained in knowledge, the more he grew in sorrow. And so he's going to change his focus now and tell us about a different track to try to answer this question. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. In other words, he's setting out here with a particular purpose to answer that question that he raised for us in chapter 1, verse 3, about what we gain in life. And so he's going to focus on just absorbing as much pleasure as he can. Maybe that is, is where meaning is found, where satisfaction is found. But as he gets started, he kind of tells us his conclusion right out the bat. He says, behold, this was also vanity. And remember that word vanity is simply the word that means smoke or vapor or mist or even a breath. It's used to refer to something that is fleeting. It looks like something is there, but you try and grab hold of it and you open your hands and it has evaporated. It is vaporized. And so he says in verse two, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? And he starts to tell us here that I pursued laughter and, and comedy and jokes but he doesn't even really give us much of a description of this. He just says it's, it's madness. And of pleasure, what use is it? Now, laughter is not a bad thing. God has designed us so that we can laugh. In fact, Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn because you will laugh. Speaking of life in the kingdom of God, laughter is a, a good gift. But Solomon here understands that even in laughter, there's a sense in which it doesn't answer that fundamental question about what it is that we gain. And just think of maybe some of the best jokes you've heard, or maybe some of the the funniest videos you've seen online. The laughter is there for a moment, and then it's gone. In fact, Solomon would say this in the book of Proverbs, even in laughter, the heart may ache. He goes on in verse 3, he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. I hear Solomon turns his attention to, to drink and to cheer his body with wine. He says, I'm doing this with my mind still engaged. My, my heart is still guiding me to see if there's any answer to the fleetingness of life, the enigma of life, and the bottle in the bottom of a bottle of wine. And he's doing this. Uh, some people say that uh, he, he's just getting tipsy here. <laughs> uh, and other people says, uh, he says he's laying hold of folly here. So he's giving himself over to folly. But whatever the case, I mean, Solomon is, is seeking to experiment with wine. Wine itself is a, is a gift of God. We're told in the book of Psalms and Psalm 104 that God has given wine to gladden the heart of man. And it is one of the experiences that we can have of delight in this world. But Solomon gives himself to pursuing is, is wine. Or maybe we can think of it as, as just chemicals in this world. Can chemicals alter us? And to answer that question of what it is we have to gain all the days of our life under the sun. Now, Solomon had the means, this wise sage, had the means to get the best wine possible. In fact, 
we're told in First Kings chapter 10 that all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. Now, I remember being at the home of a wealthy business owner here in Texas, and he had uh, outside his pool, uh, next to his pool was this pool house that he had converted into a cigar shack, so to speak, a palace. Uh, but below that, he had built a wine cellar. And you went down the spiral staircase to this wine cellar, and there were hundreds and hundreds of bottles of wine. And it was just amazing to be there and, and to see his collection. And I went back up and I was talking with some people and the host came over to, to see how we were doing and asked if we were enjoying the evening. And so people had different bottles and glasses of wine around. One person spoke up and just gave praise to this man for his collection of wine. And he asked him this question. He says, do you have a good recommendation for a cheap bottle of wine? And the host pulled the cigar out of his mouth and he said with an air of confidence, I know nothing about cheap wine. And he put his cigar back in his mouth and turned and walked away. And all of us busted out laughing because the question asked of this man seemed to be really kind of out of place. And Solomon would probably say the same thing. I know nothing of cheap wine. I would not pour cheap wine into my vessels of gold from which I drink. He had the means to, to gather the best wine that anyone has tasted in the ancient world. He also had the means to throw the best celebrations and parties. In fact, we're also told in the book of Kings that Solomon's provision, this is his provision of food for a day. His provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. That's 5.5 tons of flour and 60 cores of meal. That's 11 tons, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer and gazelles, roebucks and fattened fowl. I mean, people estimate that these parties and this food would have fed thousands and maybe even tens of thousands. This was what Solomon's provision was for one day. He had the means to explore the best party life, the greatest wines, the best foods, day in and day out. And yet when he stands back from it all, he says, something is missing. I like what Derek Kidner said in his book of Ecclesiastes, his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, as Solomon jumps into this revelry, part of him stands back from it all. My mind still guiding me with wisdom, he says, to see what frivolity as a lifestyle implies and what it does to a man. He notes at once the paradox of hedonism, that the more you hunt for pleasure, the less you find. In any case, he's looking for something beyond it and through it, which is exactly true. I mean, he tells us as he looks to cheer his body with wine, to lay hold of folly, he's doing this till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, if you remember from our earlier studies, I said that we were meant to hear the wise voice of an old repentant Solomon who is teaching younger people about life and what it is like. And he tells us here that he, part of his experiment was to find out what there is for man to do, the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I find it interesting the way he put that. He's not talking about the few decades of their life or even the few years of their life. He takes the, the span of our life and he compresses it. And he says, we have a few days of our life. And, you know, compared to eternity, that's absolutely true. I mean, we are here today and gone tomorrow. But he's searching. 
And he's testing himself with wine and with parties to see what good there might be for us under the few days of our life. He continues and he says in verse four, I made great works. I built houses and planted for my vineyards for myself. Uh, Here, when Solomon talks about having made great works and built houses, he was not joking. Solomon was given the privilege of building the original temple of God in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And he spent seven years building this temple, which was one of the the wonders of the ancient world. Anyone who would have seen it would have had their mouths hanging wide open. It was a thing of beauty. But even though he spent seven years building the house of the Lord, He spent 13 years building his own house. We're told the central hall of this mammoth complex of his house was 13,500 square feet. The hall of the throne was 3,375 feet. On his throne, he had these massive lions, 12 of them, one on each step. And in this picture we have here of of a recreation of this uh, glorious room that he spent so much time in. There's a picture of carved lions here on these stones. But as we're told from First Kings, we're just simply told he had lions there. And some scholars believe he actually had live lions lining his throne. Now, in either case, whether they're live or carved, I mean, this was something to behold. And he built houses Remember, he had a a huge family. He had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. He built cities for his horses and to house his wealth. So he tells us that he made these great works, built houses and planted vineyards for myself. He said, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I mean, Solomon had the means (laughs) to, to recreate a sort of paradise on earth. In fact, one commentator by the name of Craig Bartholomew put it this way. He attempts, as it were, to recreate Eden. And when I read that, I thought, you know, that's exactly what all of us are trying to do. We live east of Eden. If we imbibe the the story of the scriptures, there was once an Eden, a paradise on earth in which God placed our first human parents and gave them the commission to spread his kingdom throughout the face of this world. We were meant to live in a paradise. But as our first parents rebelled against the creator and all of humanity followed in his footsteps, we are east of Eden. And we attempt through what means we have to to try to recreate a good life for ourselves. There's a song called Homesick for Eden by an artist named Paul Smith. And he says this, all of us are homesick for Eden. We yearn to return to a land we've never known. Deep is the need to go back to the garden, a burning so strong for a place we belong, a place we know is home. In a very real sense, this is what Solomon is doing. He's taking all his resources and all his effort and all his toil, trying to recreate a paradise on earth. And we see maybe a few fractures in his 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 kingdom. In verse 7, he says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. And as we look at that, we want to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? And while it's true that in ancient Israel, there was such a thing as indentured servanthood, it wasn't slavery like we know slavery here in the United States in terms of child slavery. 
but it was a way for slaves to be indentured or people to be indentured, I should say, and they could be that for a certain period of time and then have their freedom given back to them. But nevertheless, to have to have a king boasting about building his empire with slaves should in one sense remind us of another king who boasted of that same thing, the Pharaoh in Egypt. And so I wonder, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if Solomon means for us to sit there and say, whoa, something is off here. Is Solomon becoming Pharaoh? It's a good question to ask. He also says, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. My friends, he's not lying. He had so many horses that he built cities to house his horses in. He tells us in verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Again, he's not lying. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 10 that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now, I know for you and me, we don't understand what a talent is. I did the calculations of that. One talent is approximately 75 pounds of gold. And so on Friday, I did the calculations with our current price of gold. And this is what the equivalent would be in our day. It'd be one trillion two hundred and ninety-four billion four hundred twenty-one million five hundred ninety-two. Did I say that right? The numbers are so big I can't even pronounce that correctly. The point is, Solomon had enormous wealth. And so when he boasts of his wealth, he's not lying. He had the means to create the kind of lifestyle that he thought would bring happiness. We're also told in 1 Kings these words, silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. The Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Verse 8, he also tells us, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. And he here tells us he has the, the means to acquire the best entertainment in his day, both men and women, no doubt from his own country and from countries around. He could, he could buy the entertainment. I think of stories today of, of wealthy emirs and other people who can, who can buy entertainers, the big and biggest names in entertainment, and bring them to their personal parties. Solomon said, I could do that in spades. But he also tells us that he had many concubines, the lights of the sons of man. He doesn't really camp out on this, but as I just mentioned a moment ago, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Many of those wives, no doubt, were from political marriages, but basically Solomon saw it, and if he wanted it, he got it. Think about that. A thousand women. His bed was never empty. A, a different woman every night would take years for him to get through. And I wonder how many of those women went to those evenings against their will. How many of them maybe thought, Solomon will notice me and make me one of his, his prized wives. I doubt he even knew the names of most of them. Verse 9, he said, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Let me just pause here for a second. Solomon says he's pursuing this to see if there is anything to be had. His, his wisdom still guiding him. And he says his wisdom re remained with him. And, and yet we're told in the book of Kings that Solomon's wives turned his heart from the Lord. 
And so I wonder if there's a sense in which we're, we're meant to hear him say that. And we question, what does he mean by that? His wisdom remained with him. One commentator, there's only one that I saw this. Uh, he, he said, maybe we're supposed to see this with a bit of irony. I mean, Solomon is, is full or pursuing a hedonistic lifestyle. And yes, he's trying to do it thinking about, will this fulfill me? But nevertheless, he's going in ways that God had forbidden. Verse 10, he says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Here's Solomon, this wise sage whose voice we're meant to hear in the book of Ecclesiastes, tells us, look, there was nothing that I could not get. I had the means to acquire the kind of lifestyle I wanted and to pursue pleasure and to pursue my projects. And that was the reward. I simply got to do what I wanted to do. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but as we as we went through this passage, I underlined, I think, almost all the times in which he said, I, me, myself, or I did this for myself. And what's absent from this picture is God. He, he's living for himself. And we've talked about this before at Mercy Hill Church. This is simply the doctrine known as a person curved in on themselves. This is what our sinful self does, is it causes us to live for ourselves and to live selfishly. And no doubt many people got the benefit from Solomon. They, had, they, they got to imbibe of his wine and enjoy his parties and to, to take strolls in his parks. But at the end of the day, Solomon said, I was doing this all for myself. I had the means to do it, and I was doing it for myself. And yet, and yet, nothing dulled his ache. Nothing. He had the means. He had the opportunity. He had the genie in the bottle, so to speak. He could do whatever he wanted to, and he withheld nothing from himself. And yet, that ache remained. He still found himself looking for more. One commentator by the name of Philip Ryken put it like this. Pleasure seemed to hold out the promise of purpose in life, but it didn't last. In the end, it turned out to be empty, elusive, ephemeral. This is what Solomon called hevel, smoke. It seemed to, to hold out the promise of substance, of, of answering his deep longings. But as he grabbed hold of it, it simply evaporated in his hands. Reichen continues, by the time these pleasures floated away, the preacher was left with absolutely nothing. His hedonism proved to be meaningless. And this is what Solomon said in conclusion. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And here the sage confesses, when it was all said and done, everything that I've been striving for was a grasping after the wind. It was a, it was a striving after that which could not be grabbed. He's looking for satisfaction, for happiness, for fulfillment, for gain under the sun. And he gained a lot. But he said it was nothing. It was heavy. It was fleeting. Some of you may remember the song Peggy Lee made a hit in 1969. It's entitled, Is That All There Is? And when I listened to this, I remember her talking about going with her father to the circus and seeing all the, the beauty and the wonder and, and the awe of the circus. But in sitting through it, 
she felt like something was missing. And then she, you know, would write this song and she said, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all there is. It's interesting to see uh, this artist basically getting to the same point that Solomon got to. And Solomon would say, yes, this is exactly where I'm trying to take you. He doesn't want to leave us there. He's going to unpack it more and more for us. But he says, look, based on my experience, everything is fleeting. You're always left wanting more. You're always searching for more. And so let's hit pause right there and just leave Solomon for a moment and Think about a few points of application. I got two for you. First point of application is this. This world is not designed to fill the deep ache of your soul. All the the glitter and gold of this world is never designed to fill that void, that ache deep within your soul. It will always leave you searching for something more. C.S. Lewis, as so often is the case, has perfect words to describe what we're talking about here. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, the Oxford professor said this, most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, our longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There is always something we grasp that, and that first moment of longing that fades away in the reality. It, whatever that it is, it, the professor says, has evaded us. I think Solomon would jump in and say, that's exactly what I'm saying. It, whatever that it is for you, it will always evade you under this sun. It will always leave you wanting more, searching for more, crying out for more. Now, some of you may know who Billie Eilish is. She is the 18-year-old sensational artist who just hit the world by storm last year. Her first album debuted on the top of Billboard 200 and became the best performing album of last year. She has won already in her first 18 years of life, five Grammys, two American Music Awards, two Guinness World Records, and three MTV Music Awards. She has sold 37.5 million digital singles in the United States alone. And she has this song, Everything I wanted. And this is how it begins. I had a dream. I got all I wanted. Not what you'd think. And if I'm being honest, it might have been a nightmare to anyone who might care. What a a stunning admission. Some of you remember this quote by Jim Carrey, the, the famous comedian, which he said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and have everything they've ever dreamed of so that they will know that it's not the answer. I don't know where Jim Carrey is landing in life and his thinking about Jesus, but he is perfectly in line with Solomon here. Everything you ever dreamed of 
will still not be enough. It is not the answer. I was listening to Johnny Cash's song, Hurt, this last week, and he has this line in there in which he says, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. And I thought, I wonder what the ancient sage of Ecclesiastes would have said to this. I think he would say, yes, that's a perfect description of all that I've gained under the sun. It is simply an empire of dirt. Riken, once again, his commentary is very helpful. He says, if we are able to find lasting satisfaction in earthly pleasure, then we would never recognize our need for God. But satisfaction does not come in the pleasures themselves. It comes separately. Satisfaction only comes in God himself so that our dissatisfaction may teach us to turn to him. This is one of the main reasons why Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. And I would absolutely agree with that. One of the reasons why the sage took the time to compose these thoughts for us, as we're looking at in the book of Ecclesiastes, is so that we can see that this world is never meant to satisfy us, not in the way that we long for, not in the way that is permanent. Jesus himself would take the the question that the sage asked in chapter 1, verse 3. What is it? What does the person gain for all that they do under the sun? And he would put his own twist on it. This is what Jesus said. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus is trying to tell us, look, there are some things that are more important than accumulating toys and experiences and getting everything we want. You can get everything you want and still miss out on the most important thing. And that leads us to our second point of application. Know that your desires are meant to lead you to your creator. Sometimes when people hear these discussions about desire, they think the desire itself is bad. That the best answer is to to quench desire, not quench it, I'm sorry, extinguish desire, to deaden it, to not feel anything. But that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus teaches us that our desires are meant to lead us to our creator. Again, C.S. Lewis is very helpful in describing something of what we're after here. And another work called The Weight of Glory, he said this, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. I think the old sage of Ecclesiastes would say, that's exactly right. I was fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, collecting all my toys and all my experiences, and infinite joy was offered to me. And I was the spiritual leader of Israel. And I still didn't see it. I didn't have the, the wisdom, even though I was the wisest man. I didn't have the, the, the right thinking to align my heart in desires for God. Infinite joy is offered to us. The Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said, Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. To put this slightly different, Jesus died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to infinite joy. He's the one who takes our eyes off the things of this world by asking us, what does it gain if you gain everything but lose your soul? And he reminds us of the most important thing, which is to be connected to our creator. And so Jesus died to connect us to God, to connect us to infinite joy. And we get a foretaste of that right now when we bow our knee to Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. 
But let me say something that might just be a little controversial here, my friends. For the believer, there's still a sense in which we say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Now, now don't get me wrong. Jesus is the answer. But you and I still find ourselves living east of Eden and before the coming of the kingdom of God. We still find ourselves living out of paradise. And so even though we get the joy of believing in Jesus and the peace that comes that surpasses all understanding, that's what makes living in this world bearable. But there's still a sense in which we long for that paradise. Remember earlier, I mentioned that song by U2 called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. In this, Bono, the lead singer, has an interesting admission. He says, I believe in kingdom come, and all the colors bleed into one. Let me just make an editorial comment here. He's confessing that he does believe in the kingdom of God, and that day when all the colors bleed into one, I think that's a poetic way of saying when all of humanity will, will once again be united, this time before the throne of God. And then he says this, singing to Jesus, You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I remember when this song first came out, and as a new believer in Christ, I really wrestled with this because I said to to Bono in my imaginary conversation with him, how can you say that if you believe in Jesus, you still haven't found what I'm looking for? But as I've grown older, I've come to understand exactly what I think he's getting after there. Even though, yes, we do believe in the king, the coming kingdom, and even though we do believe that Jesus uh, broke the bonds and loosed our chains and carried the cross of our shame, there's still a sense in which we are longing for that promised kingdom to come and become a reality. One more quote from C.S. Lewis. You know I got to get him in here. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I think he's exactly right. Even in this world where we have the ability to reconnect with God, to experience joy and peace that passes understanding, to experience the forgiveness of sins and communion with him, we are still living in this broken world. And we long for this world to be set right. Wallace Stevens the poet who wrote Sunday morning had this amazing line. He said, in contentment, but in contentment, I still feel the need for an imperishable bliss. I love that line, an imperishable bliss. Solomon would be like, that's exactly what I was after. This is what you and I long for, an imperishable bliss, one that doesn't fade away, one that isn't ephemeral, one that is permanent, one that lasts. And we're told that this is found in the presence of God. The psalmist in Psalm 16, this is actually Solomon's father, David. He said in this prayer, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. King David knew what so many of us fail to understand is that in God's presence, that is where we find fullness of joy. And he doesn't call us to deny our pleasures, but to seek our pleasures in him. His pleasures that he gives to us are forevermore. They are imperishable. And so my friends, I want to conclude just by giving you these words of the apostle Peter from his first letter entitled first Peter. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so my friends at Mercy Hill Church, may you find in Jesus the answer to all the fleetingness of this life. May you take your thirst for an imperishable joy, for infinite joy, and find it given to us at his hands. And in that day when he will come back to make everything new.